0: Love talk radio.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. Um, So, today, I got a bunch for you, baby. I got a bunch for you. Um, so, let me take a look at what I got lined up. What I got lined up for you. So, uh, we got major concession from Ukraine to uh, Russia interesting stuff, and this has, this has uh, some interesting consequences associated with it that we'll get into. Um, we're going to lead with that in just a second, the new concessions from Ukraine to Russia. We also have U.S. dollar supremacy is being seriously threatened for the first time in, in my life, certainly. Um, Trump shoves his foot in his mouth yet again talking about the war in Ukraine, Elon Musk gets involved, Uh, he loves injecting himself into controversial issues in the most hilarious way possible. Uh, One of my favorite stories today, there is a really heated Fox News debate on Fox and Friends about uh, Russia and Ukraine, and uh, you're going to be surprised to learn it actually was a decent debate, like it actually was, was good, like I actually enjoyed listening to it. We'll talk about that Um, The Senate passes a bill to make daylight savings time permanent, so we are going to rejoice. We're going to party like it's 1999, as the old song goes. And then um, I got some new polls on 2024 for you later on. Uh, Interesting breakdown of Joe Rogan's viewers' demographics and much, much more. So anyway, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And um, we'll do that with the new – the interesting news – about a major concession from from Ukraine. So news broke yesterday about a major concession from Ukraine to Russia. Uh, they're basically openly saying now uh, and giving into really the core demand, or at least nominally the core demand from Vladimir Putin. So let me go ahead and throw that up on the screen here. Um, this is in Newsweek. Vladimir Zelensky says Ukraine won't join NATO. In his strongest terminology yet ukraine's president vladimir uh, zelensky appears to have accepted that his country will not become a member of nato and one of the demands made by russia uh before it invaded according to sorry the, the type the letters are small for me here let me make it bigger according to a translation of his comments in a speech zelensky said that ukraine had realized it would not become part of the western military alliance for years we've heard the opposite open doors however it is not, he said Tuesday, according to Ukrainian news outlet Truka. Our people understand this, and we're, we are beginning to count on our own strength, he added. Media outlet Nexta quoted Zelensky as saying, We realized that Ukraine will not become a member of NATO. We understand this. We are adequate people. Kiev needs new formats of interaction with the West and separate security guarantees. Zelensky has repeatedly called for NATO to set up a no-fly zone above Ukraine to prevent the barrage of attacks coming from Russian forces since President Vladimir Putin announced the invasion on February 24th. Last week, Zelensky told ABC News that he had cooled down about Ukraine's bid to join the alliance long ago. He said this came after we understood that NATO was not prepared to accept Ukraine. So behind the scenes, um, it's very likely that – so step one is like, do you want to be a member of NATO? And, uh, you know, according to the numbers within Ukraine, the answer is yes. It's not overwhelming. I don't know. I forget what the exact number I read was. 56% maybe say they do want to be part of NATO. The government wants to be part of NATO. But, you know, step two is, well, does NATO want you? And at the very least, Germany vetoes it. And they're like, well, we don't want, well, why wouldn't Germany want Ukraine and NATO? Well, obviously, they have very deep business ties with Russia, or at least they had very deep business ties with Russia, and they got about half of their natural gas from Russia. So they knew that might threaten their business relationship. So they didn't want Ukraine and NATO. And then perhaps France was against it too. We don't know the specifics, but I'm sure behind the scenes, there were a number of countries um, that were saying, look, we just don't want them in the military alliance. Okay. So now we get the acknowledgement from Ukraine in no uncertain terms, very clear language. We're not going to be members of NATO. We're just not going to be. Now, Putin, when he lists his grievances, this was honestly, the main one, this is the main one, where he says, the problem is NATO has been expanding, and uh, hey, we have some red lines, one of the red lines is Ukraine can't be in NATO, and um, one of the arguments he gave, when he decided we're going to go in, we're going to invade, is I got to do it because the red line is being crossed, and uh, they want to join NATO, and they might join NATO, so this is like a defensive thing on my part, that's one of the main points he made over and over. Now, notice something at least as of the time of this recording that I'm talking to you right now. Russia didn't withdraw from Ukraine. But hold on, you got like, what you say is your main demand, it just got met, and you didn't withdraw from Ukraine. So what am I supposed to make of that? What am I supposed to think of that? I mean, it looks to me like maybe that wasn't your main concern. If it was, well, here's an off-ramp, dog. Here's an off-ramp and he didn't take it. Now, I bring this up for another reason, too. Zelensky kind of admitted also on February 21st, before the invasion, he said, Ukraine joining NATO is a dream. He said, quote, a dream, and it's probably not going to happen. In so many words, he said that. Now, this is the strongest language he's ever used, but he still used some pretty strong language and clear language on February 21st. Now, after Zelensky had already said that, Putin turns around, gives the speech about, like, hey, we have to do this because of NATO expansion, and then invades. So the reason why this is so important is because it's, now, it's not debatable anymore, guys. It's not up in the air. Now, can you say NATO is a part or was a part of the calculation uh, on, on the side of the Russian government to do this? I'm comfortable with that. You could say some part of it. But it clearly is not the whole story. It clearly is not the whole story. So just understand that. That, like, what's interesting to me is when it comes to the U.S. government, people understand that, like, the, the face value claims of the U.S. government need to be challenged. They need to be questioned. And so with the war in Iraq, like, oh, yeah, we're doing this because of 9-11 and because, uh, I don't know, Saddam was working with Osama bin Laden. Now, that turned out not to be true, and then they kept moving the goalposts. Oh, no, uh, weapons of mass destruction. You've got weapons of mass destruction, and that's why we're going to do it. And of course, the implication was, and he's going to use them. Like, you're going to bomb Cleveland or something. This was the implication. And everybody, every step of the way, or at least rational thinking people, were like, that doesn't really add up. So the, I, the reasons why you tell me you're doing it are not the actual reasons why you're doing it. What are your real motivations? What I don't understand is why there's a, a mental block for doing that with other, powerful states it's not like the u.s is the only large state large powerful state that lies it's also the case with russia and so we got to dig a little deeper here we got to think about these things more objectively you don't just take it at face value because again if you take it at face value well what's the takeaway okay dog you just won on your your biggest claim the thing that you said was the most important ukraine can't join nato Well, then i got two times they came out and said we're not joining nato so are you going to withdraw you're not going to withdraw you didn't withdraw So then you get into the real conversation. Well, what's it really about? Maybe NATO was a part of it, a small part of it. But if you listen to the rest of Vladimir Putin's speech and you read between the lines. Now, he never came out and said the thing that I think might be the biggest factor, which is they just found a tremendous amount of natural gas off the coast of of Crimea. And then he went and took Crimea. They found that in 2012. Then in 2014, he went and took it. We now know there's natural gas not only in eastern Ukraine, but also in western Ukraine. And he invaded all of Ukraine. My guess is, since he has a petrostate, since he's so reliant on oil and natural gas, he wanted it for that reason. My guess is, he also wanted it for geopolitical and geostrategic reasons of reforming some semblance of the Russian Empire and trying to bring it back to its former glory. In fact, again, he said as much. The only thing he hasn't really said, which I think is still a major factor, is we want the natural gas and the oil. That's what we want. But outside of that, he's given every reason under the denazification um if the blood and soil the ukraine's kind of a fake state it used to be ours now it's not ours well it should really be ours again et etc cetera, et cetera. so there are stated reasons and then there are unstated reasons and i think you look at both of them and you try to make the best calculation you can in terms of why he's doing what he's doing but again the main point here is there was a, a complete and utter concession on what he says is his main concern putin does and there's no acknowledgement of it there's no all right cool great Shake on it. We're done here. Let's go. No, he's still there. He's still there. And so, I don't know. Hopefully, there's some diplomacy going on behind the scenes, but what kind of a deal is going to be acceptable? And the way these things work, understand, usually, nobody's going to be happy with the deal, right? Like, everybody's going to be annoyed by the deal. Everybody's going to be pissed off by the deal. The West is going to think they got screwed. Uh, Russia's going to think they got screwed. But you got to give people enough of something where they turn around and can you know, say to their population, we had a total and complete victory. Like, that's the gist of it. Um, I hope there's some kind of negotiated solution. I hope there's some kind of off-ramp here. But, you know, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good at all. And um, it's definitely noteworthy yet again that Zelensky comes out and says, you know what, you got it. On your biggest thing, you got it. No NATO. Boom. And um, troops are still there. There hasn't even been a a slight de-escalation on the Russian side after Zelensky said this so everybody needs to definitely don't spread the idea that it's all about NATO clearly it's not clearly it's not now understand I don't blame you if you thought that at some point I thought that at some point I thought it was almost all about NATO but then the more time goes on the more you learn the more you see the facts on the ground you realize uh no it's not it's not and the other thing it's definitely not about I'll I'll end on this point is quote-unquote denazification. You know, hey, a lot of Nazis in Ukraine, and he's just going in there to take out the bad guys. Sounds a lot like, hey, Iraq's got a lot of terrorists. We're just going in there to take out the bad guys. Doesn't really make much sense. And also, uh, Ukraine definitely does have a Nazi problem. The Azov Battalion, at least 20% of the Azov Battalion is guard-carrying neo-Nazi. But Russia has a neo-Nazi problem, too. They have a far-right problem, too. And the numbers are clear. If anything, the numbers might be even more in Russia than it is in Ukraine. So is Vladimir Putin going to invade himself to, to get rid of the toxic ideology? No, it's not actually about that. I think you'd be really naive to think it's about that. In fact, in Ukraine, the far-right party's only got like 2% in the last election. So anyway, um, Zelensky saying no NATO. It would, be, it would also be helpful if Biden and and NATO came out and said, yeah, no NATO, because that would be an extra layer of pressure on Putin. Like, all right, what are you going to do? We gave in to your key demand. But um, ultimately, as everybody's learning, perhaps it's really not about that and there are other ulterior motives. Okay, next. Boy, oh boy, do I have a fascinating and terrifying story for you here. This is something, this is something, for real. So let's go ahead and throw this up on screen. Um, This is in Yahoo Finance. Saudi Arabia mulls pricing of China oil sales in yuan. So that's the Chinese currency, huh? They say, Saudi Arabia is in discussions with Beijing about pricing some Saudi oil sales to China in yuan instead of dollars, according to... A Wall Street Journal report citing people familiar with the matter. Chatter about this sort of arrangement has been ongoing for several years, but recent events have brought a new urgency to talks, according to the report, which says the Saudis are questioning longstanding U.S. security commitments to the kingdom. Among the issues are what the Saudis believe to be a less than enthusiastic support for the war in Yemen. Oh, my God. The White House's attempt at an Iran nuclear deal and shock at the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, the report said. So what, they wanted us to stay there forever, huh? China is a buyer of more than 25% of Saudi Arabia's exported oil, according to the story. The news would seemingly be of interest to the Bitcoin and gold markets, but for now, there's little reaction with the price of Bitcoin staying in the mid-$38,000 area and gold remaining lower by 2.1% for the day at $1,918 per ounce. Okay, so um, I have one more graphic to throw up there. This was in uh, Disclose TV. Russia and India explore alternative payment channels and the possibility of using Chinese yuan as reference currency amid sanctions. So this is the thing that I was warning you guys about. It was like a side point in one of my previous segments on the Russia-Ukraine war. That, So you had this U.S. reaction. The U.S. reaction was, let's just try to implode the Russian economy. Now, there's a number of things wrong with that. You're hurting Russian civilians who had nothing to do with Putin's invasion. In fact, many of them are out there protesting Vladimir Putin in the streets and being incredibly brave. And thousands and thousands and thousands, probably over 10,000 now, but I don't know for sure, of uh, protesters have been arrested. So these are heroes. These are not people who shouldn't be able to go to the bank and take out some money and, you know, go to the, the local restaurant. They should absolutely be able to do that. So there's been this overreaction. All the McDonald's are pulling out. You can't use Visa or MasterCard. Uh, you've almost imploded the economy overnight. Um... But another side effect of that is this. When people look at the United States and understand that the dollar is the world reserve currency, they are – the U.S. has leverage. And, you know, in a sense, the world is beholden to our whims. And when we are willy-nilly about imploding entire economies of other countries, after a while, you're going to have some rumblings of, you know, I don't think these guys are being fair. I think perhaps they're being too punitive. I think, I don't trust them. How do I know they're not going to implode my economy if they don't like something that my government does? And, of course, all these governments around the world, they just care about self-preservation and power. And so that's when you get, well, let's have conversations elsewhere. And, all right, let's talk to China. Let's see what China's deal is. Is China going to give me some sort of written guarantee that um Our country is sovereign and they will not weaponize the economy against us because then maybe we turn to China and use China's currency and so now you're starting to see the rumblings of that and you're starting to see a a coalition rise up and that is a true and genuine threat to to the dollar as the world reserve currency to, to US currency supremacy it is absolutely a threat to that so think about it we got China we got Russia. Potentially India would come along. Of course, you got Iran. And then now we're talking about the Gulf states. We're talking about the people who are supposed to be, you know, one of our closest allies. And then look at what they say, too. Their argument is, one of their arguments is, you're not supportive enough with the war in Yemen. The U.S. isn't supportive enough with the war in Yemen. First of all, ain't no war, bitch it's a genocide. It's a genocide. You're bombing schools and hospitals and open-air markets. You're blockading the country. You brought about famine and starvation. You know, you are just massacring innocent people in Yemen. Ain't no war. Ain't no war. War denotes two sides that are, you know, are, are adequately and effectively going back and forth. I mean, to the extent that there's a defensive posture from Yemen, it's barely there at all. The Houthis have nothing in terms of their power compared to you know, the power of uh, Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, backed by the most powerful military in the world. And that's the thing, like, we've sent endless amounts of weapons to Saudi Arabia. Now, under the Trump administration, they were just like, take the weapons and use it for offensive reasons. We don't care. But under the Biden administration, they lied to the public in the U.S. and said, oh, no, we're not arming them for offensive reasons. We're arming them for defensive reasons now. So we're not going to help them with the offensive stuff. But we'll we'll still give them defensive weapons. That was a total lie. They're using those weapons however they want to use those weapons. Ain't no, no defensive clause attached to any sort of agreement we have with them. That's just a posture to the U.S. public to say, see, we're more moral people. But apparently, just saying those words triggers MBS, triggers Saudi Arabia, the government, where they think, well, you're not enthusiastically supporting my genocide, so now my feces are hurt, so now I'm going to try to um, make sure you don't get enough oil, so oil prices are high, and now I'm going to run to Russia and China and cuddle up to them. And from the perspective of MBS, Again, he looks at the world. This was a great point from Shreda Parsi. He says, you look at the U.S., you look at Joe Biden, you say he's probably only got four years in there. Vladimir Putin's got a decade or more in power. He's an authoritarian leader. Now, the the systems are obviously worse if it's some sort of authoritarian dictatorship. But in terms of from the perspective of another dictator, he wants a long-term relationship with another country. So he thinks that's almost a better investment in a sense, a better relationship with somebody who's going to be there in a longer time. And why would I make a deal with the U.S.? The U.S. goes back on their deals willy-nilly, like it's nothing. So why would I, why would I continue to go down that path and have that relationship? And so now you're starting to see it, man. You're starting to see the rumblings. China's making moves behind the scenes. Now, you also have the Belt and Road Initiative. They're going into all these countries, Africa and in in Africa and in other places, and they're like, "What if we gave you some material well-being and built out your infrastructure, and then in return we get to sort of extract your natural resources?" It's empire through another tactic, and a more intelligent tactic, because there is more genuine material interest and well-being for countries that join in it. So you have them expanding their sphere of influence, even though spheres of influence probably shouldn't exist. It's sort of an imperial notion. Um, They're expanding theirs, and now they're... it looks like they're getting in a position for a currency war. At the very least, it's no longer a unipolar world, it's a multipolar world. And so you'll have, you know two different systems that clash that are sort of jockeying for supremacy. And it would be China on the rise and the U.S. on the decline. So, look, this was another reason why the sanctions couldn't have been – shouldn't go overboard. You just can't do it because people aren't there, – there's always a reaction. There's always a retaliation. There's always – people are going to look at that and, and respond. And so, again, I had no problem at all. I was a big advocate of sanction Putin as much as possible, sanction the military as much as possible, sanction the oligarchs as much as possible. I love the seizing of the yachts and the offshore bank accounts and all that stuff. I think that's wonderful. But the over-the-top collective punishment, which tries to implode the entire economy, of course you're going to have other countries that are like, we've probably got to get off the dollars of the world reserve currency because these motherfuckers are just, for any reason whatsoever, even if on paper it doesn't have anything to do with them, they're going to intervene and they're going to destroy your entire country. So they have people, like the U.S. has countries, scared of retaliation, and so they're looking for other options where they'll get more leeway. Maybe China will let us. If we have some internal conflict or we want to wage a war on our neighbor or whatever, maybe China will let us get away with it. And maybe that's a better reason to be with them. So U.S. dollar supremacy is low-key collapsing right in front of our eyes. And understand we're just in the beginning stages of it. You know, the rumblings are, are just starting and the moves are just being made, but they're certainly being made. There's enough reporting here. So you get China, you get Russia, you get India on board. That would be huge they got India on board. You get the Gulf states. The U.S. is not in a position where it could just throw its weight around and make demands. The U.S. needs to actually think about these things intelligently and strategically. And um, clearly, I don't think any U.S., recent U.S. administrations have done that at all. I really don't. And there are consequences, man. There are consequences. So we'll see what happens. But this is just the beginning. We're looking at a potential currency war. OK. All right. Let's continue. Let's go to Trump. Former President Donald Trump um, was on Janine Pirro's radio show. I didn't know she had a radio show. I knew she had a Fox News like nightly show. I didn't know she had a radio show. Um, and she was asking him about you know Russia's war in Ukraine, and he made some comments that are getting headlines. Let's listen, and then I'll react.
0: Uh, and, you know, can Russia occupy that area can they afford to I mean economically uh aren't they hurting right now? yeah not the way it's going. they can't
2: uh, everyone thought they'd go in very quickly they'd occupy and put it back into Russia, like the Soviet Union. they wanted to rebuild the Soviet Union with probably with a different name and all likelihood, that, but they wanted to build rebuild the Soviet Union, and that's what this is all about to a large extent and then you right. say, what's the purpose of this? They had a country. You can see it was a country where there's a lot of love. And, you know, we're doing it because somebody wants to make uh, his country larger or wants to put it back the way it was when actually it didn't work very well.
1: So the the quote everybody's talking about is it's a country where there's a lot of love. Now, to be fair, I've listened to this clip three, four, five times, and um, I don't know if he's talking about in Russia there was a lot of love or in the Soviet Union there was a lot of love. Everybody thinks that Soviet Union there was a lot of love, but actually listening to it this time, it seems to me like maybe he was saying, well, in Russia there was a lot of love. Almost trying to make a case like, so why would you try to go back to the Soviet Union? I don't know. You guys can listen. You guys can have your own interpretation. Either way, it's hilarious. It's classic Donald Trump. Um, but to the idea that he want, you know, Putin wants to reconstitute the Soviet Union, um, perhaps in his heart of heart, the borders of the Soviet Union, but no, he he's more—he's a Russian Empire guy. He's not a Soviet Union guy. So in other words, he's, he was, he's, of course, hostile to any sort of notion of communism. Very critical of that. Not a supporter of that. Not a fan of that. Uh, much more a fan of the, the previous iterations of the Russian Empire. I mean, you, you look at his politics, he's, he's an authoritarian strongman. You know, there's, of course... An autocracy and a capitalist system in Russia. Now, a lot of—I mean, keep it real. A lot of that has to do with the neoliberal shock therapy of the 1990s that was imposed on Russia from the outside. That's just a fact, you know. And it was very—it was very sort of explicit. The okay, let's privatize everything, where we're going to give the oligarchs complete control of the industries. It's almost like, as Matt Taibbi said, it's almost like a caricature view of capitalism it's almost like capitalism on steroids in a sense um and it it didn't deliver on the promises that were made you know it didn't really quote unquote westernize uh russia and then of course when you have you know the putin government that they don't give a shit about free speech or free expression or other things that are supposed to go hand in hand with becoming more democratic uh and it's not, it's not something to look at favorably. It's not, it's not a positive system. But yes, in terms of the idea he wants to reconstitute some glory from the past, I think that's inarguable. I think that's obvious. And Putin said as much in his speech, his blood and soil portion of his speech, where, you know, the Ukraine's a fake state. They owe a giant debt to us. They turn their back on us. Well, now we have a right. We're going to go in there and basically make what's, what's rightly ours, ours. And so he was, Putin was willing to tolerate when there were effectively um, strong men who were on the side of Russia in the neighboring countries in the post-Soviet states. He was willing to tolerate that. But then as soon as they started falling one by one and some of them wanted to align with the West, uh, you know, that's when he's like unacceptable. Can't allow it. And then, of course, you got NATO, the, the uh, military alliance encroachment closer and closer to the border. That was another factor here. Not everything but part of it. And um, so he's actually not wrong when he says like he wants to reconstruct the Soviet Union. He's wrong in that, of course, he doesn't want it to be communist, but he does uh, want it to be some semblance of former Russian empires. So he's actually not wrong about that. But the funny part, of course, everybody's pointing out is the it's a country with a lot of love, a lot of love. Like is, Was Russia a country with a lot of love, or is the Soviet Union a country with a lot of love? I, I don't know. I, if I'm trying to be kind to Trump here, my interpretation is he's talking about Um, he's talking about ultra-nationalists in Russia who yearn for some former glory, and he looks at them and says, it looks like they really love their country. They really love their country. And that's a, look, it's a similar thing with the right in the U.S. You know, it can be interpreted as, oh, the fact that you guys are such strong nationalists and you want to seal the border up and you want to, you know, make America great again, they really love their country. They really love their country. Now, of course, in reality, a lot of these ideologies are, are very harmful and destructive and um, don't yield the sort of promise that's inherent in them. But I think that's what he's referring to. It's like when I see people who, yeah, I see a lot of people who talk about the country, in the country. These people love their country. They just love their country. There's a lot of love. There's a lot of love there. But it's like, who are you, who exactly are you talking about? Who are you looking at that is, Portraying those kinds of feelings about either the former Soviet Union or Russia. I mean, of course, there's some, but I, I don't know where where he's seeing that. It seems he just babbles, like Trump just babbles. I'm not hating because I babble too, like I'm a babbler. But I mean, I don't. It was a country with a lot of love. They had a lot of love. He wants to bring back the Soviet. He wants to bring back the Soviet Union. He definitely doesn't want to bring back any semblance of communism. That is not uh, his cup of tea. But it is hard of hearts, of course, he wants to try to expand the current borders of Russia and make Russia, you know, strong again. So anyway, they, there you have it. Um, Trump's been going around talking a lot about this issue. And, of course, the main point he's making is what you'd expect him to make, which is like, wouldn't have happened under me, would not have happened under me. Vladimir Putin knows he could not mess with me. That's like his biggest thing. And the point I've made it uh, over and over is, well, look, it happened – So it happened under Democratic and Republican presidents. The invasion of Georgia was under George W. Bush. And George W. Bush on paper is very similar to Donald Trump. You know, a Republican president who is a warmonger and is sort of unintelligent. And he invaded Georgia under George W. Bush. So I think if Trump had gotten a second term, this probably would have happened anyway. But he's in a a convenient position where he can turn around and say, well, literally didn't happen under me. So that's why, uh, you know, I'm the right one for the job. And there was a poll that showed 62% of Americans agree with Trump. I mean, it's sad, but it's there. Like, 62% believe that. And we're going to get to some stories later on new polling on 2024 that have some interesting uh, conclusions in there. But anyway, there you have it. Trump's out there doing the rounds. He's babbling. And, of course, none of this stuff is going to make it then. None of this stuff is going to make it then. Because this is – in terms of Trump's scandals, this one doesn't crack like the top 50, you know, and this was the news story of the day involving Trump. But there you have it. Okay. Let's talk about Elon Musk. All right, let's talk a little bit about Elon Musk. Um, there's a great – I regret to inform you there's a wonderful rap song titled Elon Musk, and I heard it the other day in the car, and I was like, god damn, this actually sounds really good, so I'm not, as everybody knows, I'm not an Elon Musk fan, uh, but the song is fucking good, it, I'm, it's not by Elon Musk, <laughs> some rappers have titled the song Elon Musk, and he's, he's sort of in Trump territory now, right, in terms of his Twitter use, but also in terms of the recognition by hip-hop culture, if you got a song named after, so anyway, um, Elon Musk, decided to make the Russia-Ukraine war uh, about himself, as he does. Let's take a look at this article here. Oh, actually, wait, no. Let's first look at um, his tweets, which are getting a lot of attention. So Dave Weigel said, what happened in 10 days? Because Elon Musk on March 4th said, hold strong, Ukraine. Hold strong. So this was early on, and he was like, okay, I'm on the side of Ukraine. Well, now, March 14th. He says, I support the current thing, and it's a picture of an NPC, you know, like an unthinking individual, and it's got a flag. It's got the Ukraine flag. So on the one hand, he was, I stand with Ukraine. Now he's like, okay, this is getting too bandwagon-y and, like, almost everybody agrees, so now I need to be contrarian and say, I support the – you guys are are, are weird, and you guys are sheep and lemming because you support the current thing. Ridiculous. So this is – this is what the guy is uh, is doing. He's a he's a big time shit poster. He messes with people. And by the way, that the second tweet from uh, from Dave Weigel is actually good. There, he said, I guess the sincere Ukraine position got scanned as cringe, so Musk had to reverse virtue signal. That's exactly right. I think he nailed that. Um, but this is only part of the story. This is him, you know, contradicting himself on the issue. Um, clearly he's, he's more interested in like the public reaction and reacting to the reaction than he is like the facts on the ground. That's obvious. Now, I will say he did do a good thing where he has, um, what's it called? It's like Starlink Internet system that according to reports, I don't know if the reports are true. You guys would have to tell me if anybody's on the ground in the area, which God bless you if you are, uh, but that he got that active over Ukraine that's helping people in Ukraine to have internet access. So if that indeed is true, and if he indeed came through on that, okay, that's, that's great. like Credit, full stop. Um, but then we get this story, this is in the Hill. They say, Tesla CEO Elon Musk challenged Russian President Vladimir Putin to single combat for Ukraine amid Russia's ongoing invasion of the country. Musk proposed a challenge in a short Twitter thread on Monday, writing both Putin's name and the name of the country in Russian. I hereby challenge Putin to single combat, Musk said in his tweet. Stakes are Ukraine. (laughs) Musk also tagged the Kremlin's official account in a follow-up tweet to his initial offer. Do you agree to this fight? Musk asked the Kremlin. Musk has recently expressed his opinion on the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, sharing a video of him speaking with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on March 5th, according to Bloomberg News. Quote, hold strong, Ukraine, Musk tweeted earlier this month, adding, and also my sympathies to the great people of Russia who do not want this. In response, Zelensky shared his gratitude for Musk's support of Ukraine with words and deeds. It's kind of funny because, in a sense, Elon Musk is, is, is the thing that he was making fun of, like the NPC with the Ukraine flag. Like, I support the current thing. Well, you tweeted, you know, stay strong, Ukraine, or stand with Ukraine, or whatever it was, and you're talking to Zelensky, and, you know, you're, you're expressing a lot of pro-Ukraine sympathies, and you're saying, Putin, fight me. So, aren't you like embodying the thing that you're also making fun of? Now, I mean, look, what is there to say about this? It's so, like why this is the, that instinct of celebrities to, you know, make make big events about themselves. That's what it strikes me as. Yes. It's like that Imagine video. I just watched a, a good um, YouTube segment from a guy by the name of the Cavernacle, young leftist creator um, in the UK, I believe, and he. He talks about this is, this is the narcissistic celebrity mindset of, like, trying to make some important giant global event about yourself, like that Imagine video, like, you know, the whatever, the I Take Responsibility videos on, on racial injustice coming from Hollywood elites who are trying to virtue signal, like, I'm, I'm one of the good ones, I'm one of the good ones. That's what Musk is doing here, like, me, bro? I hate Vladimir. I hate Putin so much, I'll fight him. I'll fight him, bro. Hey, Vladimir, you want to fight? You want to fight? Now, by the way, Musk is way bigger than Elon Musk. Like, excuse me. Musk is way bigger than Putin. Like, way bigger. I think What is he, like 6'4", or something like that? He's giant. In fact, here, let me look it up as I talk to you guys right now. How tall is Elon Musk? Let's see. 6'2", one thing says, but that's Cora. That's I don't know if that's uh, a That's Celeb Heights, but Celeb Heights. Uh, I don't know how accurate this is. Anyway, let's just we'll say six two. So he's big. Uh, Putin is is tiny. So he has Musk definitely has the, the advantage in terms of size. Um, Putin, how tall is Putin? How tall is Putin? Five foot seven. That's what one one source here says. I don't know how accurate these sources are, but we'll just go with that. Six two versus five Huge difference. Big weight difference. Um, but in terms of fighting skill and ability, Putin is uh, has a lot more, a lot more experience, a lot more expertise. I mean, it's hard to tell. So to what extent is Putin, you know, just versed in the almost the performative martial arts, the ones that aren't like jujitsu is the real deal, where it's like people could actually fight. Pe- people who are grapplers who do jujitsu, you know, like kickboxers, these are real fighters. There are some things that are not that are more about the art of it than the actual fighting. I don't know, like kung fu is one for example. Um, they're just that are just less efficient in terms of actually fighting. So I don't know which ones Putin is um, is good in other than judo, which I'm not sure which category that falls into, like the real fighting ability or the more performative fighting ability. But either way, he's more of a trained fighter than Elon Musk is. So. That leads me to believe Putin would take it to that. I love how I'm seriously entertaining this conversation. I love how I'm seriously talking about (laughs) Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin fighting for Ukraine. Why am I even having this conversation? Anyway, there you have it. Elon Musk is um, trying to make some global tragedy, some war about himself while also like making fun of people who are bandwagoning as he is the king bandwagoner. So but I will give him credit for the Starlink thing if indeed the, the reports coming out on that are true. Social media has been interesting in a number of ways. One of the ways in which it's interesting is just seeing how unhinged elites and celebrities are. You know? Like just getting that tapping into the minds of these people twenty four seven. Has not been good has not been healthy and I I know I live in a glass house I'm a dude who I wear my heart on my sleeve whatever I'm thinking I'll just say it everybody knows that about me and my social media so on the one hand I'm not hating but on the other hand I sort of am hating because I'm like I'm just a a low-level youtuber you know when you're talking about like politicians and a list celebrities and billionaires everybody on some level wants them to be more official and more serious, you know? Like, I sort of want, like, I want to, if a billionaire says some shit, I want to think, like, hey, maybe they do know what they're saying and what they're doing, but then when there's the unhinged shit going on, it's like, oh, no, you're just sort of psychopathic and probably got a little bit lucky in your life and got some good breaks, and maybe you're smart and some very, you know, limited capacities, but those capacities ended up taking you a very long way. It just, it just, it almost feeds into one of my biggest theories, which is that meritocracy is total bullshit. We don't live in a meritocracy. And um, when you start seeing the daily thoughts of the president of the United States, when it was Donald Trump, um, politicians, billionaires, celebrities, various elites, you go, oh, It's worse than I thought. It's not that these people are, like, better than others. They're the same or perhaps even worse. I don't want to be too harsh. Maybe that is too harsh. But there's something unsettling about seeing some dude who's, like, one of the most wealthy people on the planet almost have daily meltdowns and just flail around and make some global tragic events about himself. So, anyway, Elon, get it together. Get it together. Keep doing some good Starlink shit for them, but... Don't, uh, the goofiness is 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 unbecoming, to say the least. Okay. All right. Let's continue. Oh, this is my favorite story of the day. Wait, let me see. What am I doing here? We got, this is my favorite story of the day. So this is um, my favorite story of the day. This is Fox and Friends had this impromptu debate on Russia's war in Ukraine. And it is, it's actually good. Like I was surprised. You know, I'm used to when I'm watching these Fox clips, I'm used to being in mock mode. Like I just wait for them to say the dumbest things possible. And then my commentary is like, hey, look, they said the dumbest thing possible. But that's, that's not what happened here. What happened here is it was actually a decent back and forth where you get a pretty good representation of both positions. One position being sort of the Russian state line about, hey, well, we got to do this because it was kind of defensive in a sense. That's one position that, that one of the hosts is taking here. And then the other position is the, the Western position of like, don't give me that bullshit. This was aggressive and you know it. Okay. so And, and Ducey's kind of sitting on the sidelines. You'll see the ones who end up going at it here. But let's take a look, and then I'll react afterwards.
0: Can you look at that map and and the areas that they have that you say could end up in this peace agreement? That's true. And that's why we should have never provoked them. I mean, they made very clear that there was a red line. The red line was a neutrality for Ukraine, that they could not enter NATO. And in the end, when they get this... If they get this peace agreement, in the end, that's probably going to end up being the case anyway. No, I bet, no. I bet, I bet you that one of the conditions will have to be that Ukraine. You know, promise to remain neutral will not be part of NATO. Well, i tell you what, you can never give into what Russia wants other nations to do. Uh, well, you just—they're going to decide well, going to NATO or going to the European Union when they're, they're a European society that wants that. Well, we have a we have a Monroe Doctrine, and I think we would be very concerned about this kind of action in our hemisphere. I think he said, keep it neutral, and and in the end. Probably Ukraine is going to lose more land because of this. Again, the, the, the main problem here, as you see, and, and as we discussed, well, no, actually the main problem is still China. And now we've created a bigger block, China and Russia together. This is why our policymakers aren't thinking long term. Right. Provoking this this war has brought our two enemies not closer together. They no, no, no. provoked the
2: war.
0: Well, they had a red line. And we had a, an agreement in November now, with the security We not make a red line agreement. in other countries, Rachel. It's not up to it, them to make a this red line is, in other countries. This is the fate of the geography of Ukraine. And they could have remained a free country. We could have armed them. We could have actually... And, no, no, you understand. Russia got their way. They lost their stooge in an election. The minute they lost their stooge in an election, it had nothing to do with us, they took Crimea and the two Donbas regions. And they said, we're going to do more, unless you put our guy back. We go not only do i have to put your guy back we're going to have more elections and then zelensky beats Poroshenko, and now he established himself with 70 percent of the vote why should a democracy give up because vladimir putin's a lunatic well what is happening on the it's ground reality he is who he is it's uh, called realism yeah but realism is Zelensky is a real person too <laughs> and so are the people of ukraine are real people that have a right well, to their well, own you destiny can, you can feel very bad for what is happening to the people of ukraine and you can also say that this was a preventable war in the end, and that, by the way, in the in the two weeks leading up to the war, when we kept saying they're going to come in, they're going to, in. why are the peace talks happening now after this country has been decimated and millions of people? Oh, there are, were are tons of
2: talks. They weren't sincere. In any of their talks. There were talks with
0: Macron. There were
2: talks with with, There was talks with. Uh, there was talks with uh, with so how many talks that
0: by now my point is I think our diplomats have been um, their, their diplomacy has been anemic in this entire situation. Well, what That's is my
1: happening? Is, well,
2: I mean, what's happening. happening period.
1: Jeez, look that was interesting that was an interesting back and forth if you don't think so watch it again because it is okay So let's go from the top here. Um, she says and I don't remember her name. What's her name something is it? Campos Duffy or something? Let me look that up real quick. I'm probably not going to get this. Uh, Rachel Campos Duffy. Oh, I I got it right. Wow. Wow. (laughs) I'm I'm genuinely shocked that I got that right. Anyway, so uh, Rachel says, she starts by saying, we never should have provoked them. And what she's referring to is NATO's expansion to Russia's border, provocative action, almost prods them into some sort of military response at some point, right? That's the point that she's making. But if you look at Kilmeade's face as she's talking about that, he's like, he doesn't buy it at all. He's like, this is bullshit. This is the, the rationalization for the aggression. Um, then she, uh, we get, Russia can't tell a sovereign nation what to do. That's what, this is what Kilmeade said. Look, Russia doesn't matter what they think about what Ukraine should or shouldn't do. They're their own sovereign nation. Um, so the point he's making Which is true is that this idea of a sphere of influence is bullshit. It's this imperial notion, right? Now, it's also part of a realist foreign policy view of, like, that's just the way the world works. The bigger, more powerful countries kind of have control of the countries that are nearby them in a sense, right? So the realist view is spheres of influence are real to heart attack. But his view, at least in theory here, he's espousing the more principled small-D democratic position of, like, no, that's bullshit. We shouldn't accept that framing. Russia can't tell a sovereign nation what to do. Now, of course, the interesting point to make about Killme here is, he would never accept that logic for the United States. Like he accepts, when it comes to Russia, he accepts the notion spheres of influence are bullshit, and you shouldn't and and can't tell sovereign nations what to do. But if we were talking about the U.S. and our hemisphere, he would never apply that same standard to us and say like, well, we shouldn't have direct influence and say and control over what's going on in South America or what's going on. Cuba is a great example. They're directly in our sphere of influence. We've been trying to meddle with them you know, ever since the Castros took over when there was the revolution. And he's never said, oh, in principle, we can't do this because that's not fair. No, he buys into like, oh, they're a dictator. They're terrible. We should probably do things to undermine them and or overthrow them. So he's not consistent in his logic there. But at least in terms of if he was, he'd have a point. If he says, hey, spheres of influence are bullshit, including our own, well, then it's like, okay, you know, you got a point there. Um, and then you have, um, Rachel says, we have a Monroe Doctrine, and we wouldn't accept this here. So her point is, if there was a Russian military alliance right on our border in, in Mexico or Canada, we wouldn't accept it. And that's a fact. And on that point, she's right. Like, we wouldn't accept that. Now, again, but then the question, the question gets deeper because it's like, should we accept it? Like, if we take the logic of spheres of influence being bullshit, then if Canada and Mexico freely decided to do a military alliance with Russia, then you'd have to say, all right, it is what it is. There's nothing we could do about it. Now, as long as those countries don't attack us, then it is what it is. And, and we are in no position to, like, forcibly make them not have that military alliance. You understand what I'm saying? See, this is why this is interesting. There's layers of, of nuance and interesting, you know, different positions and, and theories involved in this conversation. Um, and then and then you get – she says the U.S. is provoking this war for a second time. And he, he snaps and says, we didn't provoke the war. They provoked the war, saying, don't blame us. Don't blame the West. It, it is absolutely 100% Vladimir Putin who decided to do this. It was a decision, and he made it. Um, and then they get into the, – shockingly, they get into the history of um, – what went down in in Ukraine, and Kilmeade frames it as Russia lost their stooge in an election, and and then they basically flipped out and were, you know, funding separatists in in the eastern portion of the country and basically trying to stage at some point an eventual takeover of some degree, whether it's a, another pro-Russian public government or they literally take the eastern portion of the country or whatever. But his point was Russia lost their stooge in an election, talking about um, Yanukovych. And she didn't respond to that. But actually, it's interesting, It's important to get into this claim a little bit, too, because the people who are more on the pro-Russian side say it was a coup, that Yanukovych wasn't fairly uh, deposed, that they tried to impeach him, but they were a few votes short on the impeachment, and so it doesn't count as a legitimate impeachment, and so it really was a coup, like a pro-Western coup. That's the point that the pro-Russian side makes. But the Western side makes the point that, okay, so we didn't have the votes to impeach Yanukovych, but what happened is Yanukovych called for elections and then fled the next day to Russia. So before they even had the elections, Yanukovych was going, going, gone. So they look at it as like, ain't hey, one no damn coup. He left of his own volition, free of his own volition. And so we look at that as it's a revolution. And then they ended up having an actual election. So, so like, Zelensky won, I believe it was in 2019, in a democratic election. So this idea when people try to connect the coup and or revolution, however you view it, to what happened in 2019, there is no connection. It's not like Zelensky overthrew Yanukovych or whatever. Zelensky wasn't, that, that didn't happen. But you, look, the thing is, you do have, you could see the, the, the grain of truth in both sides there. On the Russian side, they're like, well, you didn't hit the impeachment barrier, so... Yanukovych was still the rightful president. That's the point that they make. But on the Western side, they say, well, it doesn't matter. We didn't hit the impeachment barrier. He called for an election, then he fled. So he's not gonna govern the country from Russia. He ran to Russia. <laughs> so what do you want us to do? We, we move forward and eventually we had the ele- had elections. So point is you can see the, the take from both sides on that when you look at the history of it. Um, and then Kilmeade talks about how Russia was never serious about any of these talks, like, because Rachel's like, we got to have, we got to use negotiation and diplomacy, we got to find a solution, we got to find a way out of this, which is true, that's absolutely true, but Kilmey is like, Putin doesn't, he's not actually interested in finding a solution, he's interested in doing what he wants to do, and he says it's it's 100% on Vladimir Putin, so what's my overall takeaway from this conversation, in all seriousness, I think they both make decent arguments at different times, I do, um, I don't think Kilmeade would apply the same logic he uses, the same standard he holds Russia to, that he would hold the U.S. to that standard. He wouldn't at all. But you can see what what Rachel's instinct is, is I want to try to find a way to blame Biden. That's her instinct, and the West. And Kilmeade's instinct is um, official baddie nation, very, very bad. We don't like the baddie nation. They're authoritarian, and they threaten global order and stability. So bad, 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 bad. And again, there's, I think there's, A number of things they say on both sides here uh, make sense. And I I will end on this point, though, because I do feel like this is really, really important. In the end, I think Rachel's uh, main argument fails in a very key respect, which is she starts talking about NATO and how, hey, we provoked this, et cetera, et cetera. I would have agreed with that, you know, not too long ago. I would have said maybe that's the primary motivating factor here. But the fact of the matter is on February 21st, before the invasion – Zelensky came out and said, it's a dream for Ukraine to get into NATO. I don't think it's going to happen. And then we just, I just covered the story today. You had Zelensky come out again and say, in no uncertain terms, Ukraine's not going to be in NATO. It's not going to be in NATO. It's just not. It's just, we're just not going to get into NATO. It's just that simple. So if that was the main concern of Vladimir Putin, and that is really why he's doing this, well, you already won on the thing that you say is your biggest issue. You already won. It is a full concession. So are you going to withdraw? you're going to withdraw, right? Oh, you didn't withdraw. Huh. Interesting. So maybe it wasn't all about NATO. Maybe NATO wasn't even the majority factor. Maybe there's ulterior motives. And so that's where Rachel's argument ultimately comes up short. I never would have expanded NATO in the first place because I don't want to give them any sort of um, potentially understandable argument for doing what they're doing. I never would have expanded NATO to their border so they wouldn't have a claim of like Western aggression, and we're just defending ourselves from it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, there are other reasons here. I mean, Putin was very clear in that speech. Other than the NATO thing, he did the blood and soil portion of the speech of Ukraine's a fake state. It used to be ours. It should be ours. They owe a debt, of, a debt to us. They turned their back on us. They went to the West. Now we're going to make the situation right, which is, you should really be part of us. So he made that argument. And then, of course, the elephant in the room is, there was a tremendous amount of natural gas Found off the coast of Crimea, and then Putin took Crimea, and now in Eastern Ukraine and Western Ukraine, and Putin's trying to take Ukraine. Hmm. I wonder if the oil and natural gas has something to do with it. Hmm. No, it, it can't. It definitely can't, right? Can't have anything to do with that. In the U.S., everybody understands. Hey, Iraq, maybe a lot of that had to do with oil. But with Russia, it can't be that, even though they're a petro state? Don't be naive, dog. Don't be naive. And, of course, one of the other cover stories is de-Nazification. Yeah. Uh, Don't get it twisted. Ukraine does have a neo-Nazi problem. I mean, the Azov Battalion is part of the National Guard. And they admit that about 20% of their people are card-carrying neo-Nazis. Now, I think the number is actually higher in the Azov Battalion than neo-Nazis. And there are some national heroes in Ukraine that are Nazis. I mean, it just is what it is, right? But the idea that this is the reason why Putin is doing it, definitely not true because... Russia also has a neo-Nazi problem. There there are neo-Nazi groups and neo-Nazi fighters and neo-Nazi brigades and shit in Russia. So is Putin going to invade himself? Did he even purge the own extremists from his own ranks? No. So it's got nothing to do with denazification. That's just, again, one of the cover stories. But anyway, uh, I think you get the gist of it here. Interesting debate. I think they both make good points at different times. Um, And I'll leave it up to you guys to determine what you think makes sense and doesn't. Okay. Let me take a break. When we come back, we got Rachel Maddow versus Keith Olbermann. And then the Senate does one of the best things that they've ever done in my entire life. Stay right there, y'all. show. Welcome back to the show, y'all. Okay, let's continue. Now let's talk a little bit about Rachel Maddow. I like this story a lot. This is juicy. It's a juicy one, y'all. So we have some drama, some drama internally um, at MSNBC, which is juicy. Um, Daily Beast says, exclusive, MSNBC and Keith Olbermann were in lengthy discussions to fill the Rachel Maddow void on the network until Maddow vetoed him herself. Maddow vetoed Keith Olbermann, um, and he gave her her start, or at least that's what, how the story goes. Keith Olbermann, who shaped the network's liberal voice before being canned more than a decade ago, was in lengthy discussions with NBC Universal CEO Jeff Shell and news boss Caesar Condi to return to MSNBC and take over the key 9 p.m. time slot, the former Countdown host told source material. But any dream of an Olbermann reunion was squashed when Maddow recently signed a massive $30 million deal to work less and transition out of her nightly broadcast, stepped in to personally veto him as her successor. Quote, I offered to have her production company produce the show, would give her some proxy control, and a fuck-ton of money, but she and former MSNBC chief turned consultant to Maddow's production company, Phil Griffin, refused. Olbermann told Source Material, claiming that the network also offered him a show in 2016. Quote, "I, I do not expect to continue negotiations with the successors to this management team, he added. Management is worse than asleep at the switch. MSNBC declined to comment in response. Maddow's rejection of Olbermann as her replacement is especially noteworthy considering the role he played in turning her from an Air America radio host into his protege, as an MSNBC regular, and eventual star voice of the channel, while the pair were friendly during Olbermann's glory days with the network, their relationship has soured in recent years. Okay, so they go on to explain, you know, why their relationship soured, or there's a separate article that explains why their relationship soured. He had been going around and basically saying, like, these people never give me credit. I made them. Like, I turned them into what they are and who they are, not just Maddow, but he also brings up steve Cornacki, and he brings up some others and you know in one of the articles i read about this they were like it's not even true the thing about steve Cornacki. like steve Cornacki had already been in the business for a while he had done shows in various different places and he'd been a contributor for really long and then you know eventually at some point keith uh may have given him some sort of a shot at something but he was already well established and keith made it seem like i took this guy from nothing and made him into something so keith was stretching the truth there I don't know the reality in terms of Rachel Maddow. I don't know how directly Keith Olbermann played a role in making Rachel Maddow Rachel Maddow. Um, but I do know this. I do know this. And this is um, back when I was with the Young Turks. Behind the scenes, I had a number of discussions uh, with Cenk Huger about various things. And one of the things Cenk really impressed upon me is that Keith Olbermann is an absolute psychopath. That, like, off air, <clears throat> he's impossible to deal with. Just incredible, like, next-level diva, incredibly demanding of people, incredibly ungrateful. Like, this is the stuff that I've heard. And now, how true is that? I mean, I don't know. I tend to think there's at least some truth in that, if not, it's the total truth. Um, but Maddow vetoing him is interesting for a number of reasons, because it's like, well, why? why did you, uh, Is she doing it for that reason? She knows that he's a menace and she doesn't want to put whatever the staffers who she may like or whatever through it is that the reason uh do they think is it a business decision like he's such a loose cannon he might do the show for a month and then he's gone that's possible he, he sort of has a track record of going places and then leaving abruptly whatever um or is it more of a selfish thing where Maddow's like because madow's the number one was the number one rated show on the network by far. Um, is it a situation where Maddow feels like if he comes in here he's going to be my ratings, and I don't want that there have been people who've made decisions like that before you know it's like the classic comedian story of like a comedian wants a shitty opening act to then make themselves look better you know a lot of comedians don't do that a lot of comedians just love funny and they don't care who they're following, but some comedians are selfish enough where it 's like give me somebody who I shine after you know so I don't know, but the the part that's most interesting to me is, of course, just the raw politics of it, because as bad as Rachel Maddow is, and I, I think she's bad. I mean, there was a time when she was good. She, she went after Obama for continuing the Afghanistan war and doing the surge and all this stuff. There was a time when she was good. like She was more married to the policy stuff than to the Democratic partisan rah-rah cheerleading stuff, but then eventually over time it became rah-rah partisan cheerleading and, of course, she seemingly sided much more with Hillary than Bernie and that election. And the left sort of totally abandoned her on that front because that choice was obvious. I mean, it it wasn't difficult, you know. Um, but as bad as she is, his politics are actually way, 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 way worse. And I know you're probably thinking, well, hold on. She's like, in a sense, Maddow like, was like the left-wing version of Alex Jones because she was pushing Russiagate on a daily basis. On her show, and she was—that's true—and and she was wrong, obviously. Uh, but Keith Olbermann is that on steroids? Keith, so I went back it, as I was reading this article. I decided I want to go back and see because Keith Olbermann did a GQ show at like the beginning of the Trump era, and I wanted to see—is it as bad as I remembered it? And it, it's actually worse than I remembered it. One of the segments I watched was Keith. So remember when Hillary Clinton made that co- basket of the deplorables comment and? The specifics of that comment, Hillary said, look, about 50%, about half the Trump supporters are, quote-unquote, a basket of deplorables, meaning they're TFGs, they're unsalvageable, you know, it doesn't matter how convincing you are how many facts you show, you're just never going to convince them, right? Keith did commentary on that and said, Hillary, you are fucking wrong. You're wrong because the number ain't 50%, it's 100% of them are deplorables. Well, hold on, wait, now I don't remember the exact numbers, so don't quote me on this, but I think it was like 6 to 8 million people – were Obama voters who then went to Trump. Are they deplorable? Are they all deplorable? So everybody who voted for Trump was voting for the racism and bigotry. There was not a single person was like, hey, he said he doesn't want to outsource my job, and I feel like my job might get outsourced, I'm going to vote for him. It's that kind of politics, that kind of like incredibly partisan, idiotic politics that is just, I'm allergic to it, I'm allergic to it. You have to be in the business of persuasion. You have to be in the business of treating human beings like human beings. That doesn't mean you can't have righteous indignation and anger when necessary. But if your righteous indignation goes to 100% of the other side, then you're, you're admitting, I would like to permanently lose, please. Thank you very much. Because Hillary didn't win. So if you want to, like, take a, a snapshot of that time in history and freeze it, and the Democratic supporters stay Democratic supporters, and the Republican supporters are just the basket of deplorables who are irredeemable – Well, then it's like, you're admitting I would like to lose in perpetuity. I don't want to change anybody's mind. I don't want to persuade anybody. I don't want to actually move in the right direction. I don't want to look at the overarching, uh, you know, features of the system, which got us to this point. I don't want to put the blame where it should go, which is on billionaires and corporations and the corruption of the system. And I just want to talk about how people who disagree with me are bad. That was Keith Olbermann. That was Keith Olbermann. And everything was, you know, you know him. Everything's hyperbolic and performative. Now, look, don't don't get it twisted. There was a time when Keith Olbermann – was a voice in the wilderness. There was a time when I, like, again, when I was first getting involved in politics, I sort of looked up to him because he was the only one who was out there just rallying against George W. Bush in the Iraq war, and it seemed like it was so brave because nobody else was saying it, and he was saying it on mainstream media. He was leading the charge on that front. So I remember watching him being like, God damn, he's good. This is so principled. This is so on point. This is so brave. He, he, he was, you know, just booming with confidence. But then you know you, you realize in retrospect he wasn't doing it because of like a real principled anti-war position. He was doing it out of really just rank partisanship and self-aggrandizement and narcissism and it's like, "Oh, okay." Because then all those bad qualities over the years came out and it, he looked like the group all that he is, you know? So, I mean, back in the day, Keith, look, I'll give like I'll always like that stuff the, the when he was rallying against war when nobody else was, I'll always appreciate that and respect that. But what happened to him over the years, he became insane. And Maddow is also insane, but to a lesser degree. And I'd be very curious. I would love to be a fly the wall with Maddow explaining her real reason to somebody. Here's why we can't have Keith. But it would have been crazy to see what would happen. I mean, he would become public enemy number one of the right if he was back on MSNBC every night. They would have a field day with him. They would clip him every other every day on his show, and it would, he'd be saying something that makes basically – People on the left facepalm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Why? Come on, man, reel in a little bit. You're being crazy. You're going too far. But, uh, yeah, so there we have it. Fascinating story. Fascinating story. Matt Alvito vetoing Keith Olbermann from coming back to MSNBC. Okay, next. Oh, it is time, baby. It is time. It is time. I am one happy boy today. I am happy. Um, the Senate has passed a bill through unanimous consent, by the way, to permanently keep us in daylight saving time. Now, let me explain to you what that means because some people don't, you know, they might – it's easy to, to not understand what that means because it sounds like, wait, are they making it so that we permanently have to switch the clocks? Is that what they're saying? No that is not what they're saying. What they're saying is let's keep the clocks year round as they are. But it's even better than that because they're not saying do it on standard time. Now the reason why I'm not a fan of standard time is because that's when the sun sets earlier. That's when the sun sets earlier. So you know, I, I live in New York at least half the time and when I'm here, sunset's at, you know, 4:30ish in the dead of winter and it is fucking miserable. It is so, it's just, it's horrible. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to go anywhere. It's cold. It's dark. It's sad. All I want to do is lay on a beach and have some sun on my face and go hit some golf balls and some tropical ass beautiful weather. And it's just, it's the worst. It's the worst. So what they're saying is let's do daylight saving time year round. And daylight saving time is when the sun sets later. So now, look, it's not just, I'm somebody who, my mood is more tied to the weather, I think, than most people, based on conversations I've had with people over my life. I mean, I am, like, linked up with the weather like nobody's business. I've never once in my life taken for granted a beautiful, sunny day that's 70 degrees. Never once. It's every time I'm just like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Oh, my God, I love it. I I definitely have a little bit of that seasonal depression shit going on. Um, But understand, this is not just about that, which that part is massively important. It's also about, there's been studies on this. And the studies are, there are all sorts of health problems that are associated with when the sun sets earlier, all sorts of problems. And then when you keep changing the clocks back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, there are problems with that. So sometimes you lose hours of sleep, sometimes you gain an hour of sleep. But when you lose an hour of sleep, oh my God, people, there, there's like an increase in heart attacks and strokes. Um, of course, the when you, the sun sets earlier, there, that's linked more to seasonal depression and anxiety and all these. Other, so there's psychological downsides. There's literal physical downsides, and um, this eliminates that. It eliminates that. And the reason why this is so great is that what would seem like the quote-unquote logical thing to do would be keep it on standard time year-round because the standard time is a quote-unquote real time. But they're saying no. Fuck the real time. We all like it when the sunset's later. So let's just have the sunset later year round. Yes. Yes. Congress, unironically, this is the best thing you've ever fucking done. Thank you very much. Now, actually, I said Congress. I don't mean Congress. I mean the Senate. The Senate passed this. It has to go to Congress, and then Biden has to sign it. But you had unanimous consent in the Senate. So, like, literally everybody's like, that's what's up, dog. Let's do this. So let me actually, before I continue, let me go ahead and just show you the tweet and the video real quick. Um, this is the moment that it passed.
2: I ask unanimous consent that the Rubio substitute amendment at the desk be considered and agreed to. The bill of amended be considered right a third time and passed, and that the motions to reconsider be considered made and laid upon the table. Is there objection? No. Without objection, So ordered. Thank you, Madam President, and uh, <laughs> as the day goes on, I, I look forward to others will be coming to the floor here in a moment. You'll see it's an eclectic collection of members of the United States Senate in favor of what we've just done here in the Senate, and that's to pass a bill to make a daylight savings time permanent.
1: This is like the first time in my life I've enthusiastically agreed with Kirsten Sinema because she's a corrupt goon. She's the worst of the worst of the corporatists. She just serves big pharma and all the industries and screws over working people. Uh, But she's right on this one. Now, also, Marco Rubio has led the charge on this one. Marco, thank you. Again, probably first and last time I'll ever agree with Marco Rubio on anything. Um, I think Sheldon Whitehouse also led the – I think it's the Rubio Whitehouse bill. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy days, dog. Happy days. This makes me happy. It, you know, this makes it so that the sun will never set before 5 o'clock in New York. That – like, I can't tell you how big that is. Because you could sort of deal with it. When the sun's setting 5 or later, you could sort of deal with it. You know, as soon as that shit dips before 5 o'clock, it's like – uh... uh Uh, like, my body, like, humans maybe are supposed to hibernate, like, that is sort of my feeling when every single winter when it rolls through in the Northeast, every single time, I'm like, I don't want to do anything, I don't want to say anything, I don't want to get out of bed, I hate this, I feel shitty, you know, and it makes me think, hey, maybe I'm not made to, like, get my ass out of bed every single time the temperature dips below, like, 45 degrees, and, and it's dark. So anyway, I know people are listening right now, listening to the show in Miami. If you live in, like, Miami or Phoenix or Southern California, comment in the comment section. Can you relate at all to what I'm saying? Probably not, right? Probably You probably think I sound like a crazy person right now. But are there are people in the Northeast and the Midwest who hear the stuff I'm saying right now that, that are like, he's spitting facts. He's spitting facts. So this is, I'm ecstatic about this. House, pass this. Uh, low key, I'm considering doing like a full court press with the audience and having you guys call your Congress people to be like, you better support this shit. <laughs> it, it, everything depends on it. Everything depends on it. But first time in a long time, credit to the Senate, and uh, we'll see what happens from here. I think uh, I read that uh, if it get, goes into, if it gets passed into law for real, if it gets through the House and then Biden signs it. Um, it's still going to be until 2023 is when it would change because they have, you know, there's all sorts of systems for various industries that are pre-programmed up through 2023. So they'd have to stick with the current schedule until 2023 and then after that there'd be, we'd have permanent daylight saving time. I'll take it, I'll take it. So anyway, ironically, rejoice, everybody be happy. We should be dancing in the streets. It is a beautiful day. All right, we got some bombshell new polls that came out um, about 2024 that I have to share with you. So this is where we stand at the moment. This is a a Cooperman poll. Um, Biden and Trump are dead tied at 44 percent, dead tied, 44 percent each. Uh, Trump and Harris. Trump is beating Conal Harris, 47 percent to 43 percent. You have um, Trump versus Clinton. Trump is beating Hillary Clinton yet again. 46 to 43. So, I mean, there's a lot we could say about this. It is astonishing how pathetic the Democrats are that they can't beat Trump. Trump has been going around the country giving speeches where every single time he seems to reference this idea that the election was stolen. Every time. He can't stop talking about it. It's like his biggest talking point he always goes back to. Um, Poll show. The entire country is like, shut the fuck up and move on from the 2020 election. I forget the exact number, but it was up there, dog. It was over 60%. It may have been 70% of the country was like, for the love of God, move on. So this is a guy whose main gripe is something the country is like, we don't agree with you, please stop talking about it. And he's still beating two of the three of what would be considered probably the biggest names that are in the running. What does that say about the Democrats? What does that say about... Biden. What does that say about Kamala Harris? What does that say about Hillary Clinton? It says they they just people don't associate them with any sort of positive change or any sort of effective governance and leadership. And you know what? They're not wrong. They're not wrong. I mean here Joe Biden's, you know, tripping over himself on a daily basis. He has the authority to legalize marijuana with the stroke of a pen. He has the authority to eliminate student loan debt with the stroke of a pen. He has the authority to let's propose standalone bills with the most popular provisions of Build Back Better and then apply political pressure, he's not doing it. He's not doing anything. Now, he's do, you know dealing with Ukraine and Russia right now. Fair enough. He's actually getting good grades on that from the public, but it's not translating into an overall bump to his actual approval rating. So he's got it. Barney did a video uh, either yesterday or the day before where he came out was like, look, this is serious. We got to take it seriously. The Ukraine-Russia situation, we're on top of it. But at the same time, we got to walk and chew gum. Because working people are still hurting. We got to get to work, dog. We got to help these people. It's a no-brainer. But we're not. Nobody's doing it. And so now you have Trump tied with Biden, beating Harris, beating Clinton. I mean, that's wild, man. That is wild. Now, um, let me give you some more numbers that are from the same poll here. 54% of Americans now firmly believe the country to be on the wrong track, 54%. Only 38% say the U.S. is on the right track, 38. 26% rated the economy as excellent or good. 46% said things were poor. So, again, the area where he's, he's doing his best, Biden, is Russia and Ukraine. But that's like the, one of the only issues where he is, and it's not really translating into an overall approval rating bump. He had some decent polls after his State of the Union speech. One got up to 47% or something, but um, he's still sort of languishing. He's at 43 44% territory. I don't know what the average is, but my guess is it's right around there. And it ain't looking good. It is not looking good. So uh, here we are at this super late date. Donald Trump, he's been perpetually underestimated every step of the way. And uh, he's back in the conversation, and he may be the favorite for 2024. Now, I will say, take that with a grain of salt, because – the favorite at this early stage for 2024 is still only like a plurality favorite. So maybe he's got a 28% chance of becoming president, which is more than anybody else, or 32% chance, which is more than anybody else, but it's still only 32%. Anything can happen between now and then. Somebody could die. Somebody might not be able to run. Um, you might have a surge of some insurgent candidate on the Democratic side or the Republican side who comes out of nowhere, who captures the imagination of a nation, sort of like Barack Obama did in 2007 and 2008. So you don't know, but certainly doesn't look good, man. It certainly does not look good. But there you have it. I mean, you guys can talk amongst yourselves about how pathetic it is that Trump and Biden are tied, and he's beating Kamala, and he's beating um, Hillary. Isn't it crazy that Joe Biden, after everything, Joe Biden, who's like half alive, for real, and he seems, if he's not on his medicine, he seems like he's just out of it. And he's still the best the Democrats have in terms of electability at the moment. I mean, what a sad, sad state of affairs. We've got a country of over 300 million people. And these are our options? These are our options. I would, I would literally rather go stand outside and the first person who walks by me on the street walking their dog be like, you should be president. And that person would overwhelmingly likely do a much better job than any of the people that we're talking about now. It's true. It's true. And probably the main reason is they're not swimming in corporate money, so they're not corrupt and everybody else is corrupt. But also they probably just have more common sense. But anyway, there you go. Not good polls, that's for sure. All right, next. there's an interesting thing currently going on in my home state of New York. So, uh, Kyrie Irving is unvaccinated and, um, he, there was this rule in New York that he is not allowed to play, uh, for his team, the Nets. And interestingly, he is allowed to play on the road in most places. So I think there's some places he still can't play on the road, although they may have changed that. I don't know, but there were some places in California he wasn't able to play. So, you know, couldn't play the Warriors, couldn't play the Lakers, the Clippers, I think. Um, he couldn't play at the home games, but he could play most of the road games. And um, that is because of the various vaccine rules in different states and localities. And, you know, you, you can need a vaccine to enter these public buildings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, now they're actually getting to a point where some of these re- restrictions are being lifted or tweaked. And by the way, buckle up. I saw there was a new variant. That is now on the rise. So, oh my God, here we go again. I hope we don't have another COVID wave. It's very possible we do. I forget, the new variant went from like 11% of national cases to like 24% in one week. Uh, uh. So it, we may get hit again. You know, And I think typically we, what we saw was summer waves in many places of the country weren't as common because it is harder for a virus to spread in the summer generally. In the winter, it's easier for a virus to spread. But um, so... But now there's, a, a rule, there's been some rule changes in New York. Now, the rule change is if you're unvaccinated, you can, you can go places. Like You can go to some restaurants, and you can go to the arena if you want to watch a game. That didn't used to be the case. Now it is the case. And, um, but there's this massive contradiction because there's another rule that says, you know, at your workplace, you have to be vaccinated. And so Kyrie Irving's workplace is the arena. The arena, they're allowing in the public if they're unvaccinated, but since he worked there in the same place, he has to be vaccinated. Now, the easiest solution to all this, let's get this out of the way real quick, right away, is just get vaccinated, Kyrie. Like you're going to be fine. <laughs> the the number of people who've gotten the vaccine, it's so many people who've gotten the vaccine. The adverse reactions are incredibly tiny you're overwhelmingly likely not going to have an adverse reaction. And then on top of that, of course, you have a 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, or death, actually over 90%. So, I mean, the point that everybody is, thinks up front is just, let's just get back to it and end this. Okay. Now, he didn't do that. It's been a really long time. He's not going to do that. He has reasons that he doesn't want to get it. Now, I'm on the team. Hey, I don't agree with you, Kyrie, but what am I going to do? I can't force you to get it. It's your life, your decision. It is what it is. Um I, want to, I could try to convince you using arguments and data, etc. and I'll do that, but if at the end of the day he says, no, I can't, what am I going to do? You can't just force him to get it. That's not the way it works. Now, you can have a policy of like, okay, if you're not going to get it, you should get tested. That's fair enough. I'm on, I'm on board with that, and Kyrie probably would be too. But so you have the contradiction. He can go to the arena to watch the game, but he can't play in the same arena. So Kyrie was at one of the games, the home games. Everybody's like, this is ridiculous. you got this massive contradiction in in the rule. Like, either you don't let him in at all, or you let him in and also let him play. Like, it's obvious. That's the logically consistent thing to do. Kyrie didn't play. There was a time where he went into the locker room. Why? Because he's on the fucking team. That's why he went to the locker room. Well, because he went to the locker room, the team is being fined $50,000 by the state. Just make make the shit make sense, please. That's all people want. So Kevin Durant comes out, and... um, He's asked about this weird state of affairs, and he says the following.
2: This is ridiculous. Like, I don't understand it at all. I mean, can, is there, every, there's a few people in our arena that's on right? Like, we listed all of that in our arena, right? So what's the – I don't get it. It's a yeah. second mandate that says he can come in but can't play. Yeah, I don't get it. It just feels like at this point now, somebody's trying to make a statement or a point um, to flex their authority. uh. Um, But, you know, everybody out here is looking for attention. That's why I feel like the the mayor wants right now some attention, you know. Um, But he'll figure it out slowly better. Um, But it just didn't make any sense. Like, there's unvaxxed people in this building already. We got a guy who uh, can come into the building. I guess, are they fearing our safety? Like, I don't get it. So, yeah, we're all confused. Pretty much everybody in the world is confused at this point early on in the season. You know, people didn't understand what was going on, but now it just looks stupid. So hopefully, Eric,
0: you've you got to figure this out. It is
1: definitely stupid. It is definitely stupid. It is definitely a contradic- uh, contradiction. It makes absolutely no sense. My slight disagreement with him is that I don't think it's about power. I think it's about bureaucracy. I think it's about, you know, you have these rules. They're put into place at different times. And, you know, when things get changed, it wasn't reviewed in a uh, – all-inclusive kind of way and so certain changes are made which seemingly make sense but then others haven't caught up yet and so i think it's more about bureaucracy than about just an arbitrary flex of power but either way he's right like either be consistent and say he can't even come in the building which i don't agree with or just say look let him play he's in the building anyway he's in the arena anyway And so there is no difference between being on the floor or being in the stands. If anything, when you're in the stands, you would be more of a threat to people, nominally, because you're closer to people, you know? There are more people in close proximity to you when you're in the stands versus when you're actually on the court. So, I mean, just, guys, just let them play. I mean, point number one is, Kyrie, I promise you you'll be good. Just get the Vax. I promise you you'll be good. But if you're not going to get it, okay, well, they should still let you play. I think that's just so non-controversial that it should be obvious, but I don't know. It seemed to me when I saw, I forget who tweeted out this video, but I think it was maybe New York Post, but I was reading some of the replies underneath it, and a lot of people were like somehow defending the weird contradictory rule. Now that makes no sense, and that's just fucking annoying that people are not actually digesting what the facts of the situation are and and making a more informed case like it's one thing if somebody said they shouldn't even allow them in the building because i think we should still have a hard vaccine mandate that's one thing i don't agree but that's a point you could make a point you can't make is the way it is working right now makes sense because it literally does not make sense it's a complete and utter contradiction you're allowed in the stadium but you can't play you're allowed to be unvaccinated in the stands or you're not allowed to be unvaccinated on the floor come on nobody like Nobody in their right mind can look at that and say, yeah, that's logical. <laughs> it's, not, it's just not. It's not logical. So anyway, uh, I, think, I think Kevin Durant is right. And I was at um, – Crystal and I went to a, a game in Washington, D.C. And we – it was against the Nets. And we saw Kyrie was there, and he was playing, and – it's funny because, like, the, you know how the crowd sometimes tries to interact with the players? Well, there's a lot of that going on. And Kevin Durant, who was injured, he showed up late. Uh, but when the crowd tried to interact with Kevin Durant, he was very, very standoffish and dickish and paid them no mind or whatever. Now, I get it. You know, he's at work. So he feels like, I don't want to deal with this. Okay, fair enough. Like, I'm not judging him over that. Um, but Kyrie when the crowd would try to interact with him every time he interacted with them. And there was, um, there was like a kid that was in the front row that, uh, Kyrie made a point to go out of his way to go like fist bump the kid. And the kid was like, so excited. There was somebody who kept trying to like over interact with Kyrie and Kyrie in a very joking way where he was giggling was like, Hey man, I'm at work. So he was like playing around with him. He's being very playful. Um, And, you know, just watching the way that he was interacting with people, it was hard not to like him. Like, he seemed like just a very down-to-earth dude. And, again, I don't agree with him on the vaccine thing. I think he should get the vaccine. It's not just about him. It's about everybody else. And and you could almost promise him he's going to be totally fine if he gets it and it's going to help him if anything. But, you know, it's hard when you look at him and he was acting – he was just a very, like, nice dude and he was interacting with everybody and treating everybody equally and fairly. And so that also – I'd be lying to you guys if I said that, that didn't also impact my, my judgment here. You know, that's not, I mean, it's not, it's not the end-all be-all point. It's not the debate ender. Um, but it was interesting seeing his character up front and also comparing it to every other player on the floor. Like, he was the most interactive, uh, the most kind to everybody. And uh, even with, like, the you know, the, the staffers, like, so it, it, it Crystal and I both noticed that and we're like, damn, he seems like he's like the the coolest dude. But anyway, um, they really got to change the rule. It makes absolutely no sense. Okay, next. So this is – I have some interesting numbers here for you. I came across this on Twitter and – I don't know. I thought this was uh, worthy of sharing. So this is – well, let's take a look here. This is Eli Yokley. That's an awesome name. It says, new. look at the demographic profile of Joe Rogan's fan base, or as uh, Timo DC put it, the very demographic Democrats need to be worried about. Dive into the data. So you have – this is Joe Rogan's audience. So avid fans, 72% male. Now, some people might say, hey, man, that's very, very male. But let me tell you something. On YouTube in particular, now granted he's mainly on Spotify now, but on YouTube in particular, my audience is 90% male. And it seems to be something that cuts across the entire field of politics is that um, it's always like 85 to 95% male. I don't know why, but when it comes to YouTube politics, uh, it's just overwhelmingly more male. So this actually, 28% female is more than other people in the realm. So that's actually very interesting to me. Um, non-fans you can see there you got 42% male 58% female Um, in the age breakdown is interesting so avid fans it's mostly 18 to 34 year olds then you have 35 to 44 year olds that's 23% then you have 45 to 64 that's 23% and then 65 plus is is 9% and then you can see the non fan uh, numbers there but yeah the Key demo is his main demographic. So 18 to 34, if you spread out a little bit more, 18 to 44, those are the biggest Joe Rogan fans. Uh, then you have, this is interesting too, the, um, the racial demographics. So you have avid fans, 64% white, 25% Hispanic, 8% black. Now I think that sort of roughly mirrors what the, the numbers are in the country more generally, correct? I mean, you guys could tell me. I haven't looked those numbers up in a while. But that seems to me like it's roughly in the ballpark of what, like, the demograph- demographics of the entire country are. Uh, so 64% white, 25% Hispanic, um, 8% black, and other. Or, oh, no, other is a, a, a tiny sliver here that I guess, I don't know, is that less than 1%? They didn't put in a, per- a percentage on that. Okay, so now let me show you the other chart here because now you get political affiliation. Let's look at the political affiliation. So uh, Democratic, avid fans of Joe Rogan, Democratic, 23%. Independent, 31%. Republican, 46%. So you have more, there's a plurality of Republicans or right-leaning people that are avid fans. Again, 31% independent, just 23% Democratic. Um, And then you have ideology. You have liberal, 19%. Moderate, 28%. Conservative is a majority of 54%. So this is a breakdown here. Now, Joe himself is a fascinating character because I think Joe largely fancies himself sort of apolitical, even though he does get involved in politics and does talk politics. But I think he perceives himself as kind of apolitical. And then if he had to if – you, if you asked him, he says, I'm, you know, I'm mostly left. That's what he says if you ask him. Um, if you if you zoom out and you look at it a little more objectively and you go based off like what his primary focus is and the stuff he talks about I would say he probably fits more into the camp of like the quote-unquote enlightened centrists and you know more independent type because he does have a lot of heterodox views that are all over the map um, and honestly sometimes it changes show for show day for day because if he's sitting in front of Ben Shapiro or Stephen Crowder, he generally sounds more conservative, but if he's sitting in front of me or Bernie Sanders or Abby Martin, he sounds a lot more leftist. So that's the breakdown. I think my main takeaway when looking at this, I actually was a little surprised that the, the Democratic number uh, was as low as it is, I was. Uh, but I also think that with his audience, you almost have really a unique opportunity and that speaks to the, the text of the tweet too, because, look, man, when Bernie Sanders went on, and no big deal or anything, but I sort of I sort of set that up. It's whatever though. I'm not bragging or anything, bro. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back of your dog. Um, when Bernie went on, go read the, the responses, and the like to dislike is phenomenal too. Like, it, I, I don't remember the number, 90, 95%, 98%, something like that, likes. Um, and the responses, the, the comments on the video were like, man, I thought this guy was crazy, but it turns out he's not, like, he's great, I like him, I agree with him on a lot of stuff, and I think he's honest, and so you have, that happens when Bernie goes on, when Cornell West goes on, people love that, um, then you have, when I went on, you know, I, I didn't do, I don't think I have as many likes as, like, Bernie Sanders or, or Cornell West in terms of the, the ratio of it, but Um, I still, you know, I think over 90% on most of the ones I was on or, or high 80 something percent. And the comments are all, you know, very similar. Like I, I agree with this guy. I think he's really, you know, he's, he's kind of logical and rational. So I think you have an opportunity with the audience to, you know, sway them. I think there, a lot of them are more open-minded than some might think. Now there are some that I'm sure died in the wool, one perspective or another, probably more conservative than otherwise, but, I do think that you have the potential for mass persuasion on a platform like that, which is why it's worthy to engage in an honest and upfront and authentic and serious way and not be smugly dismissive and shaming, et cetera, et cetera. So I know plenty of people out there disagree with that, but I believe that to my core. And the only counterargument I can really think of, which there is some merit to this, like I have no doubt that like, let's say, hypothetically, Trump went on Rogan. I also think he'd probably get like a 90 Plus percent like rate. And so maybe like maybe the magic of the, the platform and the show and why it's so popular is that it's very disarming and he gets people to be more open and authentic. And that authenticity is the key factor, which leads to the positive response. So if you can make both Trump look good and you can make Bernie look good, then the ideology is certainly not the main point. You know, and the politics are certainly not the main point. It's ancillary to just the vibes. And maybe that is, you know, what people like. I I read a great description of a show one time. The reason why it's it's so popular, one of the reasons why it's so popular is that it is effectively the, like, anti-mainstream media zone. Whereas if you turn on mainstream media, everything is very rigid. Everything – they have very strong opinions on everything. Um, There's not much room for nuance. Everything's very black and white. Everything's very judgy. Um, Everything is very finger-waggy. And then – Rogan is effectively the total opposite of that. He is. He's so, he's just, the zone is almost like anything goes and we'll roll with it. There are some times where lines have been crossed and he's gotten argumentative, but he's usually right in those instances. Um, so I think that that's the thing, like the feel of it, the vibe of it, the energy of it, the like, yeah, let's just chat and whatever happens, happens. I think that is one of the main reasons for the show's success. Um, but anyway, there you have it. Those are the demographics. I think there's some interesting findings there. Um, and again, I wouldn't, there, I don't think the left has, can afford giving up on giant platforms like that, where there, are, there is the potential for persuasion. And um, it's just a matter of, I mean, if you're politically involved, you're always sort of in, you're always in a battle for the heart and soul of the, the general trends and, and the population's mindset. Like, you're always trying your best to shift the conversation back towards, hey, here's something that's really important and that we should do to change things for the better. And, um, you know, it's just it's a lot harder to win any battles when the only tool in your toolkit is shame, condemnation, and um, dismissiveness. I'm not saying there's never a time for that. Sometimes there is. But the overwhelming majority of the time, that's not the case. And um, I think with Rogan, it's a good example of that. So, you know, I hope that over time that number uh, ticks up for the Democratic side. Now, you guys know me. I'm critical of the Democratic Party like a motherfucker. But if you say more, if you break it down in terms of, like, leftist versus right wing, I hope it shifts a little bit more left. I view myself as a populist leftist and independent thinker but on the left. And I think that uh, we could take that number up quite a bit because the 23 number is low. And um, I have higher hopes than that in terms of persuasion ability. Okay, next. So I have a nice video here of Charlie Kirk. He's going to admit something that, uh, in retrospect, he might regret. But let's take a listen, and then I'll respond. I, I don't believe in religious freedom for Satanists. I don't. Religious freedom means Christian freedom and Jewish freedom and other types of religions that I think are acceptable. But we should totally ban Satanists from the public square. Again, Kelly doesn't have an opinion on this. The yeah. opinion's heard on this. But, no, but what I'm saying, though, is that, like, they believe in, like, child pedophilia, and they call themselves a religion. Right. So, And I know why First Liberty has to say what you say and all that, but no, like, that's not a religion. It's not. And so we cloak Christian liberty under religious freedom, and I think that's helpful in the courts. But I refuse to believe the Founding Fathers thought the fruits of liberty would include the American Satanist convention. Well, I mean, the Founding Fathers um, believed slavery could be you know, part of the country, so it's not like they have strong moral objections to some of the most important things. They're on board with, they were on board with some of the most important things. But anyway, putting that aside, um, I mean, these people believe in child pedophilia. Oh, you mean like the Catholic Church, which was known for rampant and widespread and systematic child pedophilia? By the way, child pedophilia is redundant. It's just pedophilia. I mean, you can't, you're not a religion because of X. It's like, well, they could still... So anything bad that's supported makes them not a religion? Well, I got news for you. If that's the criteria, then nothing's a religion because all the religions have aspects of it that are horrendous. Horrendous. So you can't say, since that thing's bad, it doesn't count as a religion. Well, that's not the way it works. It could be bad, and it's a religion. So I, I don't... But he admits something there that's astonishing. He says, I don't believe in religious freedom. For because Satan exists, okay. I'm gonna blow everybody's mind. You actually, you guys probably know this, but apparently Charlie Kirk doesn't. Like the, the the Church of Satan or whatever they call themselves these days. They uh, it's a troll. It's a troll. So the idea behind it is you have usually conservative places in the country, they'll put up like some Ten Commandments shit in front of a public courthouse, and the Church of Satan goes there and they put up some sort of hail Satan shit and then there's a lawsuit, and then they have to take down the Ten Commandments because they go, look, we have separation of church and state. You can't, on you know, public land, promote one religion over another religion. You're just supposed to have, you know, the government is the government and religion is religion. It's separate because the government has to represent everybody. can't represent a particular religious viewpoint. We're not a theocracy. So that's, that's what they're in the business of. They're in the business of trying to protect secularism in the country which makes sense. They're not, they don't actually believe that like, Satan is Lord. They don't, they don't think Satan's real. These are non-believers who believe in secularism, who are trying to preserve secularism by doing these high-minded troll jobs, which end up winning in court. But he acts like he thinks they're real, like he thinks they're actually... I mean, maybe there's a handful of people out there who genuinely like, worship Satan or whatever, but what percentage of the population is that? And by the way, that doesn't mean that what they're doing is not a religion. Of course it's religious. It's by definition religious. But he's want to throw out religious freedom... Because there are people who he doesn't like, who he doesn't want to grant them freedom and the ability to worship and believe as they believe. I mean, it's so indicative of the right-wing conception of freedom. They don't actually believe in freedom. They believe in freedom as long as I allow it. It's like when they talk about free speech. They don't actually want free speech. They just want to be the censors. They just want to be the ones who are, are in control of what's allowed and what's not allowed. And you see this all the time. How many right-wingers lost their minds, and on principle objected when various Antifa accounts were banned from Twitter. Zero. Zero. Now, on the flip side, when some right-wing figure gets banned, I'm out here saying don't ban them because I'm principled on it. They're not. They are not. It's a ruse. It's a game. It's a tactic to them. But there you go. I mean, that's a huge admission from Charlie Kirk. He doesn't believe in religious freedom, and he's a religious person. Well, I'm not a religious person, and I do believe in religious freedom, so there's that. Okay. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. Let's do it. So there's a serial killer out there who is mass murdering homeless people. This is terrifying stuff. Now, thankfully, he was just caught. This is in the New York Post. They say suspect in deadly shooting spree of D.C. and New York City homeless people arrested. So let's see what the body of the article says here. Uh, A suspect in the serial killing and shooting of homeless people in the Big Apple in Washington, D.C., was arrested early Tuesday, and the Capitol Police announced the gunman, identified by a high-ranking police official as Gerald Brevard III, 30 years old, was busted when investigators showed up at his home in the southeastern section of the Capitol, law enforcement sources said. Uh, Arrested early this a.m., law enforcement arrested the suspect in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Police Department announced at 5.40 a.m. He is currently being additional information will be forthcoming thanks thanks to the community for all your tips the arrest came just hours after the force released clear facial photos of the prime suspect who had been tied to two murders and three attempted homicides targeting homeless men in both cities the same man was linked to both to both cities after chilling video footage caught the cold-blooded slaying of one of two homeless people shot in Soho on Saturday a Metropolitan Police Department homicide captain who used to live in the Big Apple Saw surveillance photos and realized they looked like the man in his department was also chasing. Okay. So, now let me give you a little bit of more, a little bit of extra information on this. So, he stabbed some people. He shot people. He lit homeless tents on fire, the encampments. Uh, he also assaulted one brutally before murdering him execution style at point-blank range. And, look, I mean with a situation like this and why this is unique is because it's obviously ideologically motivated. Like it wasn't like he had some personal grievance with a couple, like one or two homeless people. No, he was on a spree of trying to kill. I think he successfully killed two, tried to kill three others. Um, he was doing some serial killer shit where he's trying to purge the the cities, DC and New York city of homeless people. And you know, if you talk to him and you get honesty out of him He's going to make an argument of, like, I don't think these people should be on the streets. I think they're making our city dirty and gross, and they're like cockroaches, and just full, complete, utter dehumanization. And obviously it's ideologically motivated. And by the definition of terrorism, which is violence done for political or religious reason, this is definitely violence done for political reason. In a sense, he's a terrorist. That's what he is. Um, now, I found this fact amazing. Uh, Gerald Brevard III was previously – found guilty in connection to a burglary and abduction pattern in Fairfax, Virginia, and was on probation. So this guy is a criminal. Like previously, he was a criminal. So the thought I couldn't get out of my head was like, so this dude looks at homeless people and thinks like, these are the undesirables and the untouchables in society. So he looks down on these people, and he thinks that's right, he thinks that's just. But you don't think, like, in the hierarchy of like, the untouchables and the undesirables, wouldn't most people put, like, proven criminals below homeless people? Like, a homeless person could be out there and never have committed a crime ever. And they just fell on hard luck, and they're out there. Or they have mental illness, and they're out there. But with criminals, oftentimes people think, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly, that, like, look, they can't control their impulses. They hurt people. They do premeditated violence. Like, that's way worse than somebody who's homeless. So it's almost like, by his own view of the world of this hierarchy of who is granted humanity and who isn't, wouldn't he be granted less humanity than the homeless people, and therefore wouldn't, shouldn't he rather put a bullet in his head than start killing homeless people? It's like clearly there's warped thinking here. Clearly there's warped thinking here. And he thinks he's out there like doing, bringing about justice by gunning down innocent people, but in, clearly he's not doing that. But also, by any sort of hierarchy of humanity most people would put active proven criminals below homeless people because homeless people could easily have never committed a crime or done anything to hurt anybody else. They just fell on hard times. So anyway, I mean, it's just – it's terrible. And there has been – I mean, look, you don't – we have no idea if this guy got – where he got these ideas from, right? But there has been a concerted effort on Fox News, among them from uh, Tucker Carlson, to – Run these incredibly dehumanizing pieces on homeless people to, you know, treat them like vermin and cockroaches. And, and, and the fact of the matter is, it is obvious. But I'm going to make point anyway. Like, you don't know their story. You don't now. I'm sure there are plenty of examples of homeless people who. It just all stems from mental illness. That's possible. Some it all stems from drug addiction. It's possible some people. It's both. Other people in, with the way the economy functions and. The, The way the world is, there are plenty of people who literally just fell on hard times. And by the way, the mental illness people and the addiction people don't deserve less sympathy just because they have mental illness or they have addiction or they have both. But there's that group, and there's the group of people who just fucking fell on hard times and they can't pay the bills. Maybe they lost a loved one and they fell apart, and they lost their job and they couldn't get another job. Like, people are complex, people are intricate and nuanced, and they have life stories. And you know, if you sit down and listen to somebody open up to you in a real way, you'd be astonished at how moving a lot of these things are, but when it comes to homeless people, there's no, there's no acknowledgement of that. There's no acknowledgement of that at all. It's just viewed as like you're the other, you're weird, and there's this dehumanization that goes into effect. And now you have a guy who's doing serial killings of homeless people. So, yeah, it's uh, it's terrible, man. But he's probably going to be found guilty and found guilty quickly because he's caught red-handed. They got his face right on video, and um, he's the one. So, there you have it um, maybe don't dehumanize them. And also maybe let's do the simple thing and let's do the easy thing of, we should also have universal mental health care for all universal rehabilitation centers. If people need it, you shouldn't have to break the bank to do it. And also a housing first policy where it works. We know other countries have done it and it works. You just, almost people have their own place. They get off the street. You don't have to give them a mansion. You don't have to give them a 2000 square foot home. Just give them a little place to stay, a little apartment, little one of those mini houses or whatever. And that helps people that plus UBI, and you almost eliminate homelessness. You have some numbers still, but it would be massively reduced. All right, guys, we are done, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you soon. Peace.